Right, so I am sitting on a bench in San Francisco with Sharon Daniel. Hello, Sharon. Hello. It's great to have a chat with you. And we have just sat and had a lovely lunch of um, burgers, fries, and uh, everything that's nice, whilst talking about the internet and the role of the internet in art. And I just wanted to have a couple of minutes with you to find out your take on, or your thoughts on art and the internet in general, and your own work uh, in relation to it. Yes, well, I've been working on the internet since, uh, I guess, the mid-90s. Um, and I've really been committed to having my work on the in internet for political reasons, um, and partly for the kind of affordances that the technology provides. Um, my work is interactive documentary, and um, the projects are very multivocal and polyphonic, and uh, making an interactive piece that's driven by a large-scale database of statements made by um, multiple individuals from a community with shared experience. Uh, that's what I like to do, and I like to have it exist on the internet uh, so that it can be distributed widely and freely. Um, so part of my goal is to create context for um, new political subjects to be able to speak and be heard, and then to have that hearing take place broadly. So it's a very egalitarian space in that regard, or rather it allows your work to cross boundaries and to reach others who otherwise might not come across it? Yes, that's the goal. And I think um, it's important that, you know, I, I try to look at the context that I provide as making an argument uh, that is made by the people who are participants in the work. So the materials are organized around the topics of greatest concern to say if i'm working with a community of incarcerated women for example um, you know i listen to what they have to say over a period of time i like to interview people um, they're not really interviews they're more like conversations i usually start the conversation with something like you know what are the things that concern you most in the context that you are in at this moment and then i try to get as much material as I can from as many um, people within that context as I possibly can and then I you know analyze it I sometimes even use uh, like a qualitative analysis software um, and try to come up with topical organizations that actually express the interests of the people that I've been interviewing and then I want to make that available in a way that's that's sort of brings together their experience and, and their concerns in a kind of coherent argument to provide more of an understanding of the situation of the particular community or people that I'm working with. And how does your use of uh, new media or digital uh, media differ from a, a straightforward documentary approach, would you say? And, and what does, what does the, the digital element bring to the party, would you say? Yes. Well, the digital element actually allows me to um, do what I think of as database-driven work. So the difference in the experience of the viewer or user of a project is that they get to kind of traverse, um, a, you know, 
a kind of collection, uh, for lack of a better word, of, of data based on their own interests uh, within the context of that the data comes from. So say again, if we're talking about working with a group of incarcerated women, um, you know, the women will express a variety of concerns that are very particular to their own individual experience, but they also are have shared concerns. So in a way they speak in a collective voice. But for what I like to do is get as much material as possible. And then I, I think of it kind of as a site of social problem. And um, I want to allow a viewer or an audience member to understand the complexity and the scale of that site of social problem. Um, by sort of dropping them down into it and letting them find their own way through it. And I often have used, you know, my, my mother as an example of, of, of a person who, like, I wanted to convince of something, right? I want to make an argument to, um, and I did do this project uh, a number of years ago uh, called Public Secrets, where I did work with, uh, you know, interviews with incarcerated women in California. And... Um, you know, my mother was a person, a well-meaning person who thought that, you know, people who are in prison are there because they did something wrong and they're being punished and the punishment is just. And that's the kind of thinking that I wanted to overturn with this with this project. So for my mother, she got hooked in a way when she saw the project, or actually before I even completed the project, I told her a story that I thought would be compelling to her because there was a woman who was incarcerated, who I was interviewing, who had um, diabetes. And uh, my father had diabetes. And so diabetes was a very prominent, like central part of, of our lives. Um, and uh, so this woman who had diabetes, she was incarcerated for passing a bad check. So she was sitting in prison for like five years for passing a bad check. She had diabetes. She wasn't being given her uh, proper diabetic diet. She wasn't always given her insulin, which she was prescribed. And she was uh, starting to lose feeling in her feet. And she was at risk of having one of her feet amputated because of diabetic neuropathy. And this was, you know, she passed a bad check. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So. I was able to tell my mother that story and it completely changed her sense of what was happening in the criminal punishment system. And I think when I lay out, you know, the site, the sort of database, the topical structure, the array of materials that I've collected from the people I'm uh, interviewing and, and who are participating in the project, I think there's always some entry point for different people around different issues that you know gets them into it so they can follow their own trajectory of interest and then they can learn and hopefully through that they can have a kind of transformative experience yeah that's fascinating thank you and uh yeah a really interesting way in which you're using the technology in order to enable conversations enable your your artistic practice to 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 happen and I'm just here and I'm starting out my little journey to uh, find uh, Silicon Valley and uh, explore the potentials of the internet. So finally, how would you say, uh, or do you have any thoughts about where the internet is heading or digital technology in general, or your thoughts for, for the future around issues with, with digital technology? Mm, that's a really, that's a tough question. Um, I think it's heading in a lot of different directions. Um, for me, uh, the 
innovation in technology is not really my primary concern. It's really about what technology affords. Like we were just speaking about the question you asked me, you know, why do I use technology? Well, I have these very specific goals that, that, uh, about dissemination and about structure. And for me, it's like, okay, the internet allows me to think on a larger scale, to think more about structure and to think more about equality, about democracy, about the, the openness and the availability, uh, the possibility of creating kind of speech situations, allowing people to speak. I think that's also kind of can be a problematic, right? If uh, thinking about like the fragmentation of, of the political spectrum in the U.S., for example, uh, and the sort of bubbles that everyone lives in of, of you know, within their own perspective and point of view. Uh, so I think that that it requires careful curation and argumentation, not that things should be excluded, but that things, that communication should be thoughtful. And so I think, you know, there are some new advances in technology, like virtual reality, for example, doesn't really interest me very much, um, though I can see why it is interesting to people. Um, but it's so enclosed, you know, and it's so individualized. And frankly, I hate the headsets. Um, so, it, you know, I, I think it's going in a lot of different directions. I sort of operate within the documentary making world. And, uh, you know, I think there are kinds of ideas about immersive experiences in that literal sense that happens with VR being compelling. Um, but I think all the claims about empathy production and so forth around that are, I'm, I'm not particularly convinced by that. What I think produces empathy um, or understanding is, you know, a conversation, like something a little bit more two-way. Um, and so I'm hoping for more advanced technologies that foster that kind of opportunity. One of my aims of coming all the way out here is to have conversations. There's only so much I found that I could really understand just at a screen at a distance. And by actually meeting people face to face, there is no substitute for it, at least not yet. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you, I've enjoyed this, thanks. Right, so I am now in the Mission District at San Francisco uh, in, in a fantastic, what, 1920s, 30s old cinema building, and it is now home to Zero One, uh, an arts organisation that is interested in digital and new media. And I've just been having an amazing chat with Shamsha Verk, who's the, the lead, the director of the organisation. Hello, Shamsha. Nice to be speaking with you today, I just wanted to briefly capture a couple of things from our conversation that we've just had just now. Would you like just to say a little bit about Zero One and uh, what it's uh, about and, and how it uses new media in your projects? 
Absolutely, happy to. Yeah, Zero One has been around for about 20 years, a little over 20 years here in Silicon Valley, the San Francisco Bay Area generally. And we exist at the intersection of art, science, and technology. And we leverage those areas, those different disciplines and practices for social change, um, primarily through three programs, uh, international exchange, public art, and arts education. What would you say is the, the role that digital media can play in creativity and bringing new ideas to the table? Ooh, lots of terrain to explore there. I mean, I think one of the things that drew me to this work is the fact that technology is becoming more and more embedded in our lives. Of course, it always has been if we want to think about things like the loom as technology or these, you know, um, the pencil, the pen, these forms of uh, these tools that have been with us for a long time. But if we're thinking of digital media or technology in this sense as emerging technology, uh, there's a place for artists to play with those tools and see what's possible with them. So a sort of experimental aspect to the work that I think is interesting. And maybe more importantly, um, a question around how we adopt or how we integrate these new tools into our lives that creatives have much to say about and can help us both think about what's possible, but also critique um, when we are into, uh, bringing these things, folding these things into our everyday life, critiquing how it is that we do that and who it affects and how. Because we were talking about um, integrate the way that tech has become almost seamlessly, well, no, not seamlessly integrated into our lives, but uh, an inevitable part of our lives and something that almost now is just taken for granted. And yet the dynamic between the tech and the individual and who's zooming who in terms of who's in charge of that relationship is something that's definitely up for grabs, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, it's becoming ubiquitous and inescapable um, and certainly also spread very explicitly by those in power or um, those with resources. So I think for us, a big part of the work we've been doing, especially in international exchange, is being inclusive in the development of these technologies, development and adoption of technologies, so that it's not just those who are you know, building them in the, the global west or the global north, um, but also those in the south, in all parts, all corners of the world, let's say, um, who need to be part of that conversation and, and help us think about what it all means to be incorporating these new things into our lives. So I'm in the Atlas Cafe in San Francisco to meet Scott Kildell. Hello, Scott. Hi, how are you doing? Very good. And we've been having a really good chat about art and technology and your approach to technology. And would you just like to say a few words about how you use tech in your own art practice? Right. Well, I, I think of technology as a means to an end. And uh, the kind of artwork I make, so I call myself a new media artist, and the shorthand for that is this art and technology with criticality. So it's not, we call it like, not, not blinky, blinky LED lights. It's, it's getting away from Burning Man art and the stuff that doesn't really have a deeper layer of commentary or criticism around it. Critical art thinking about how that art might 
function in the rest of the society. So it's a dialogue between art and technology. And so from an artist statement, if I want to get to the conceptual practice of it, um, I create artwork which looks at the interplay between territory and technology. And the way that works is, imagine when a new technology gets introduced. So right now, like NFTs are really big. That's a relatively new technology. The territory expands. And the corporations, big corporations are too slow to like really get in there and do interesting stuff with it. They're just, they move at this kind of like, you know, dinosaur-like speed, you know, like the slow dinosaurs, not like the T-Rexes. And, and, and while um, a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs or artists will go in there and immediately do something kind of creative with it. And that's the space I like to get into and think about how the rules can be changed or altered or provide examples of creativity in that realm. So I'm a little bit like, um, like a mosquito in some way, like sort of sucking the blood out of the current technology and then going to the next one. So, um, you know, right now I'm doing some NFT work. I'm also doing a lot of work with electronic sensors and DIY sensors and ecology. Um, I've done work with VR. I've done work with Second Life. You know, remember Second Life, right? So that, that you know, that technology has been like, the mosquito has been sucked the blood out of that technology already. But I was doing that for years and years. And performance artwork in a group called Second Front. So that's kind of the lens through which I look at technology is how do I create an experience for other people using the technology in a way that creates this dialogue of interest and criticality. So you're something of an early adopter, maybe. Probably so, probably so. (laughs) And we were talking a little bit about where it's all heading and whether it's good news or bad news. And, and, And like most things in life it's you know it's it's neither one thing nor the other it's, there's there's good and bad to most most things how do you see things playing out with with tech and things like the direction of robotics or ai or the the integration between tech and and life have you got any thoughts on that particularly that's a kind of a vast field right so it, and one of the questions is like it's where's the good news and the bad news right and it's it's really the good news and bad news for which person to whom, to whom does that news apply? So uh, if you look at something like AI, well, I mean, AI is, certainly has so many good uses in the future and probably will benefit society, but you know, it'll certainly displace people from work and it'll certainly create unequal opportunities for some people. There's access issues. And so those are kind of the lens at which I look through things is who has access to these new services? Like how does it somehow... I don't like using the word democratize, but I will use the word democratize. How does how do these new technologies enable more people to do interesting things or have better lives? And so one example we were talking about a little bit a little bit ago was I do a lot of teaching as well. I teach design work, and one of the it's for sure one thing I know to be true is the design tools are so much better now than they were ten years ago. Um, there was a, like an iPad app called Procreate that's great. I just learned about it from my students and it just supports like gestural drawing and lets you do things that that you couldn't do you know you can't do with Adobe Illustrator and it's amazing and it's just it's there and students are using it and it's it's like ten dollars or else the the free version is free and that's great that's fantastic but then at the same time there's bad news and those students some have money and some don't you know but then the bad news, you know, around tech, right? Like it's kind of like, what are the bad uses? What are the good cases? Um, some of the bad news around tech is that, you know, low-income communities are being shut out of a lot of like the new tech developments. Like a lot of the tech infrastructure is being put into um, higher-income communities, which tend to be, you know, full of white people, right? And so, you know, if you're African-American, you may not have access to faster internet. You may not have access to certain machines or certain technologies that, should be shared. 
Yeah, very interesting, fascinating. Yeah, like, like everything in life, things are political, aren't they? There's a political dimension to, to almost everything. Uh, so finally, um, what's next for you? What have you got uh, planned? I am working on an NFT storytelling project. So NFTs, I think everyone kind of has heard about them, but um, NFTs have um, built-in features that allow for non-deterministic non-deterministic storytelling, meaning that I can set it up so that, let me jump back and rephrase this. I'm working on a new NFT storytelling project around science and exoplanets, and I'm partnering up with the SETI Institute, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, to help do this. Now, this project is in the early planning stages, but the idea is that anyone who has a credit card or cryptocurrency can buy a ticket to imaginary voyages to different exoplanets. And you get assigned different roles, and it's kind of like Wordle for every day you get a new edition of your story, but your character is going to be different than the character of like the next person that does it. So if I sign up, I might be randomly assigned the science officer. You might be randomly assigned the on the command team. Someone else might be a custodian. Someone else might be a space tourist. You might even have a stowaway or two. And then you'll have these branching narratives around what these characters might do. And it's non-deterministic, meaning that even I don't know the outcomes. I know all the different possibilities, but maybe the spaceship, the voyage might fail. It might have not enough crew members to actually sustain itself, or it might come back with these really awesome biological samples. And this will be tied into the NFT universe, and we'll talk about like making what's called drops and having artwork that's you know made into the collectible market. But what I'm really interested in with this project is the storytelling aspect about it and creating interfaces into science-based storytelling around exoplanets and astronomy instead of this sort of dominant strain of colonialism that we see with like Musk or Bezos and like, you know, we're going to go mine asteroids or we're going to go colonize Mars and, you know, getting out of that capitalistic model and thinking more about the inquiry model. Right, so I am at the Exploratorium in San Francisco with Kirsten Buck, who has been we've having having a great conversation about art, technology, and science. Hello, Kirsten. Hi there. And uh, thank you for joining me and having a quick chat about uh, the Exploratorium. So I have to say, first of all, it is the most amazing place. It's full of scientific um, exhibits in which they're all interactive you can play with them there's such a sense of play and joy around pushing buttons pulling levers and it's, it, it is really just uh, it takes you back to your childhood but it's also so fantastically well I, well educational uh, but in, a, in in the most open-ended way isn't it it's a fantastic place yes we really um hope that people will learn something um, through informal play um, and discovery. I mean, really, um, there's a lot of complex um, scientific concepts in some of the work that we're showing here, the exhibits that we're showing, um, but hopefully through wonder and play, that'll lead to insight and learning. And wonder and play are a great overlap with art as well, because I think a lot of artists start from a point of wonder or a point of playfulness as a means of just opening out their thoughts and their thought processes and imagining new things. And that can lead to new ideas, new discoveries, both in art and in science as well, can't it? Yes, I mean, we're hoping. I, I, I don't know if we're actually at the forefront of 
groundbreaking technology or research here, but we're definitely trying to help people understand their world and new ideas and um, concepts that, that are foundational. Yes, and, so, and the overlap between art and science, you, you do have some artists who also contribute some works here, and I was particularly struck by the piece in which uh, there are these moulded faces of Chelsea Manning, about uh, 10 or 20 of them, and they're all possible recreations of her face based on her DNA sampling um, by an artist uh, who's been an artist in residence with you I believe and um, can you tell me just a little bit about how artists have been engaging with uh, the Exploratorium? Yes we bring artists in um, we have a long-standing artist in residence program since 1974 um, and really it is um, a a way for us to bring outside ideas into our um, learning environment, both for our audiences, but also for our exhibit developers to learn new approaches. Um, the art, the art that is made um, through our artists' residency program, um, you know, turns up on our floor, turns out to be an exhibit, turns out to be something we weren't expecting, and sometimes what the artist isn't expecting. Um, probably Chelsea was a pre-existing artwork that we brought in to kind of help us illustrate some things about cells and DNA. Um, but ideally in a lot of our artist relationships, um, they're learning from us and we're learning from them. And it's all hopefully something that is reflected back towards the public. Right, so I am at the School of Visual Philosophy with Dana, who is one of the founders of this project. Hello, Dana. Hello. So I am here on a second Saturday open day, and the place is buzzing, and it is um, fantastic to see such a vibrant art space, so full of different creative activities. Could you just tell me a little bit about the space and about what, what there is on view today? Yes, I would love to. Um, my husband, Yori, and I started the School of Visual Philosophy about seven years ago, about eight years ago. And we both taught at art schools and we're artists ourselves. And we really wanted to change the way art was taught because we felt like it was lacking a lot of structure and a lot of focus on being a professional artist. So that was one of our goals. And we also wanted to share our knowledge being artists and give other artists a place to create their their work so thus the school of visual philosophy was born and the name comes from the way that yori and i see art as a language so we feel like it's a great communication a connection tool um, like your visual philosophy and in order to kind of connect more with the neighborhood we're in pretty much downtown san jose um, we decided to start our second Saturdays, which is a streetwide event. So we're on this um, street called the Alameda. And we feel like beer and music is what brings people out. So we've got live music at about seven different venues. We've got, um, you know, there's places to get some drinks, some food, and mix it with art. And today we have an instructor showcase, which means that uh, because we're a school, we have artists who teach classes and we wanted to showcase them and have them share their artwork and the classes that they are going to teach. Well that's fantastic and I have to say it, it is really um, buzzing and I, and I love the way art can be such a kind of vibrant it kind of brings 
um, places alive and people alive. Yeah, so here we have um, studios and facilities for hot work, which we call forging, blacksmithing, if you think of like swords and metalwork, um, door knockers, that kind of thing. Um, they do that in the back along with woodworking and mold making and even metal casting. And then I run the print shop, which means things like lithography and screen printing and um, etching. And then we have a classroom for painting and other types of artwork. We had a photography class earlier today. And as I mentioned to you before we started our chat, I'm here to kind of I've come in search of Silicon Valley. And this is appears to me to be very much based around um, the physical kind of craft and, and labor and, and the, the kind of analog side of things. How do you see you know, the digital side? And can you just say a little bit about your thoughts about the whole Silicon Valley um, experience or digital art or you know, your thoughts about what this um, uh, studio space is, is aiming for in contrast well is it if it is in contrast to i don't know the the digital arts and the the digital world yeah definitely we we started you know we're artists in the traditional kind of art so i do painting and printmaking yori does blacksmithing and sculpting figure sculpting and so we really respect the traditions and the traditional way of working kind of academic way of working but there's also not only um you know, a way that we can incorporate for ease of making, say 3D printing a maquette instead of sculpting it, um, and time-saving abilities. But also I work with technology and interactivity because I feel like it's a great way to enable a deeper connection with my viewer. So we have um, tools like a laser cutter, we have 3D printers, we have other kind of digital, a digital computer lab. And I feel like the way that we can teach the integration of technology is to respect the traditions and to understand how it you know, was done originally and then start to integrate that technology because then you get an understanding of not only how things were made and the respect for those, but also you can get a broader range of applications that way. Right, so I am at the Codex Book Art Fair with Robert Dawson, who has uh, an ongoing project to photograph the libraries of the world. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you, and all the better for seeing your work. I'm amazed at the, uh, the project that you've been doing. The, the photographs themselves are amazing, but I also particularly wanted to ask you about your reflections on the library in the light of your project. Would you like to say a few words about your project and uh, what you've been up to? Well, I should just give a background that I've spent 18 years photographing libraries throughout the United States. And from that, I learned uh, quite a bit about what makes the American library system work. And I decided to take that on to the global scale and have been now photographing libraries, especially starting in Northern Europe, uh, Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Moscow, and then on a Fulbright in Italy, Greece, and Israel. So we've, we've spent uh, several years now working on this and uh, just really feel, you know, we've produced an album of this work which is the first public expression of the global library work. 
and uh, we'll continue the project. This is not the end. I mean, there's obviously huge areas we've left out, like the British Isles, uh, Scandinavia, uh, other parts of the world that we're very interested in. We, we will plan on doing that. We do have a, we're working with our American Library of Congress and they have a very uh, strong interest in us continuing the project in Mexico. They have a real connection with Mexican library, Mexico in general. So that probably will be our next big uh, push is to spend work time there. Uh, but so far it's been an incredible education. I bet. And in the context of my little journey to uh, the heart of Silicon Valley and the rise of tech and the, the way in which knowledge has, has moved online, how would you say uh, that's affected libraries over the course of your project and, and what might be the future for libraries? Yeah, well, it's, it's a question we really were concerned with, too. Uh, we, when we started the project, had a feeling that libraries were actually fading away. A lot of people said that to us. And we actually found just the opposite, surprisingly. The libraries were actually more vital, more active, uh, community-supported in the United States, uh, and uh, packed, full of people. So who would ever guess that? I was really surprised. And I, and I think it says something about libraries themselves understand they have to stay relevant, and they do that by uh, being inclusive of a community that's around them. So there's a lot of community centers that are based in libraries. And the, obviously the whole internet computer world, um, for people that don't have access to their own computers or internet, they go to the library. And it's, it's a, it's a re remarkable system. I'm not a trained librarian, but, and I'm a photographer, but I've wound up learning to really appreciate, see this as sort of a vital, essential part of the world. And now we're beginning to kind of take those lessons from the American system and look at other places. So European libraries, are different. There are different stories that come out of them than American libraries and um, the way that they hold their collections are somewhat different and even their funding is different. So there's there's lots of ways we're looking now at uh, what is this thing that's called the global library. It's fascinating though as well isn't it in terms of the context between analog and digital and the kind of tangible and the intangible and the way the internet is intangible and, and feels impersonal, uh, impersonal to some extent and, and, and virtual and no matter how much they try and make it into the metaverse, there's no replacing uh, the analog, the kind of human, the interaction and that seems to be what the libraries are bringing to the party and why they continue to be relevant and, and along that scale of analog to digital, how important sense of community is and, and, and uh, the tangible nature of books and knowledge as well as the intangible. Yes. And as I always say, if you go to the help section on your computer uh, and then if you think about going and asking the question to a librarian, obviously you're going to get a lot more of a response. And libraries are tr librarians are trained to interact with the public on all different levels and just help in whatever way you need it. I, I, I think there's a special place in heaven for librarians. I think they're absolutely remarkable what they do. And it's a rare thing, partly because of their non-commercial nature. And they're there, um, we pay them, but they're there to help us. And, you know, the technical world has obviously opened up whole new vistas, and we're, we're very happy to have that along. But we also realize that, as you mentioned, the human connection and just the human-based subject. I mean, the libraries are some total of humanity's knowledge, and we are in that uh, 
trying to, to make that uh, apply to all different levels. I mean, we've been to libraries in very extremely poor communities. Uh, one of the areas we focused on were refugee camps and libraries. Uh, Jungle Library in Calais, France, several years ago was a very famous place. We went there and they, they, there was a library in the jungle um, and unfortunately it was demolished uh, not long after we were there, but it served a purpose and it, it was a beacon of hope. And, and So those are the kinds of things we're looking at on the global scale is that not just your normal public library, but libraries and serve specific purposes, communities, maybe refugees or people living on, you know, a, very uh, uh, restricted uh, situations, they, they wind up, library oftentimes is a lifeline. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media. And check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon.